Well, today, church, we're going to be continuing on in our what we've come to label as the supplemental sermon series, uh, and we're going to be looking at James three thirteen through eighteen. The title of today's sermon is "Wisdom from Above." Wisdom from Above. Our Old Testament reading will come from uh, the first chapter of the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at chapter one of Proverbs, and our New Testament reading again, James three. 13 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, let knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son. The, the, the proverbs are often written in, in this perspective as a, as a father to a son. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head, and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait in for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This next section being titled, The Call of Wisdom. Verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge, they did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me Referring to wisdom, 
Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Moving now to the New Testament reading, James 3, 13 through 18. Here again, the reading of God's most holy word. James says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus far, the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. I pray that your word is presented clearly. I pray that your word convicts our hearts, Lord. I pray that we understand clearly what your word has for us today, that we see it properly in its context, and we see, Lord, what you want us to see in the reading of it. May we be faithful, Father. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Biblical Wisdom Church is somewhat of an increasingly lost art, especially when it comes to the actual practice and implementation of biblical wisdom. But the word wisdom is one that is continuously found throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. And as wisdom is presented in the pages of Scripture, it is presented from very early on in Scripture as having two sides. There's two types of wisdom that the Bible mentions. There's the wisdom of God, and then there's the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom of man. Oftentimes, this is just summarized in the word of foolishness. The Old Testament contains what we know as the wisdom literature books. The book of Proverbs is one of the most prominent of the wisdom books, as it is full of short sayings which lay down practical principles of applied wisdom. There are also other books like Ecclesiastes and Job, which attempt to deal with more profound questions, such as the meaning of life and how man should relate to God. The main goal of wisdom, however, is always to direct the individual to a better understanding and a more proper relationship with God, in addition to having a better relationship with his fellow man. In fact, this is what the Ten Commandments are summarized in, our relationship to one another and our relationship to God. As we read today, the beginning of the book of Proverbs is a book that is solely devoted to the foundation of biblical wisdom, which would lead us to conclude that the book of Proverbs is a book totally devoted to wisdom. Chapter 1 is a call to pursue this thing that is called wisdom. But wisdom is not just an Old Testament concept. It is found all throughout the New Testament. In fact, many New Testament principles are founded upon Old Testament wisdom. For example, look again at the idea found in Proverbs 1, 20-23, a section that we just read, that wisdom is available for any and all who seek it. Listen to those words. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. 
Wisdom is presented as this thing that is there. It is always there in front of us. Contrast this section in Proverbs with Christ's teaching in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, when Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, states, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. This idea, the way that Christ is saying this, is based on this wisdom principle. Look also at Proverbs 2.6 and compare it to that of Matthew 16.7. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Matthew 16.17 says, When Jesus answered Simon, Simon Peter, he said, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Again, the idea being that when things are revealed of godly wisdom, it is God alone who is the one who reveals it. Look also at Proverbs 8.13 that teaches that wisdom demands that one turn from evil in order to acquire it and contrast this with Mark 1.15. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted speech that I hate, says the Lord. Mark 1.15 In preparing the way for Christ... John the Baptist says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Both these verses show that it is through wisdom that we understand that we ought to turn away from our sin and instead turn to the Lord. To understand this requires wisdom, and that wisdom must come from God. We also see that wisdom demands an obedience to the truth, Proverbs 8.34, Matthew 7.21. And that wisdom requires discipleship. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5, Mark 1, 17. Now I take the time to share all these verses with you to show you that at the core of Scripture is what we would see as a theology of wisdom. More specifically, a theology of the wisdom of God. The Bible in its essence is the wisdom of God. We possess, with this thing that we bring with us every Sunday, the wisdom, the very words of God. This is important Because throughout the pages of Scripture, we see from the very beginning of the Bible this conflict between God's perfect wisdom and man's tainted, distorted, self-centered, evil, and what we would call worldly wisdom. It was in God's wisdom that all things were created. It was in man's wisdom that God's ordinances would be disobeyed and that the fruit of the garden would be eaten. It was in God's wisdom that a path of redemption for Christ was made. Though through man's wisdom, man would turn toward evil. But through the wisdom of God, Noah was provided with God's wisdom to build the ark and save man and beast. Through the wisdom of man, worldly and often sinful kingdoms would be created. And through the wisdom of God, the kingdom of Israel was instilled. You see, brothers and sisters, this theme of man's wisdom versus God's wisdom has been at the core of all of human history. It literally is the story of mankind. World history is the story of the battle between the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. Everything in this life, ever since the beginning of man, has revolved around these two different forms of wisdom. This is very important as we look at our passage for today, because as we have seen, James' theme revolves specifically around these two types of wisdom. This is why... James' first instructions in his epistle, if you remember back to chapter 1, were to direct the people of God to consider their trials as joy 
Everything really has hinged on that phrase all throughout James as he starts it. It's his foundational principle. From the world's perspective or from man's wisdom, there is nothing that you should be joyous about in trials and tribulations. That is nonsense. But in the wisdom of God, we know that such trials and tribulations are in fact what is perfecting us into the image of Christ. This is only revealed to us through the wisdom of God. Later in chapter 1, James again contrasts the wisdom of the world with God's wisdom when he encourages his audience through God's wisdom to act upon the word of God instead of just hearing the word of God. Act on it rather than act on what the world would say to do it differently. This is why James tells us to put these things into practice. They're more than just words. They're not concepts. They're not ideas. These are things to actually live by. And this is also why in chapter 2, James begins to rebuke his audience, saying that they were acting upon the world's wisdom when they showed favoritism towards those within the church. According to man's wisdom, those with wealth should be treated with partiality. Those are the friends that you want to make, according to the world. Those are the ones to keep close. Those are the ones that are going to get you places. But according to God's wisdom, all people must be treated equally in the kingdom. This is why James concludes chapter 2, stating that faith without works or works meaning the actual applying and living out of God's word, is in fact a dead faith. Living out God's word is godly wisdom in action. Hearing God's word and not actually acting upon it, according to scripture, according to James, is foolishness. And foolishness is just another word for worldly wisdom. So in chapter 3, after showing the reader their need for wisdom and the taming of their tongues... James merges to this most central idea that he has spent the last three chapters of his book preparing us for. At the end of chapter 3, James simply reveals these two juxtaposed forms of wisdom that he addresses throughout his entire book. And James has repeatedly made the point, giving us several examples now, of what the wisdom of the world looks like in contrast to the wisdom of God. It's that Poseidon effect. It is James showing us the two different sides, how the world would do it and how we should do it. And so as we begin in verse 13, James starts out with this simple question, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James begins this section with the question, who is wise? Remember James's context of all that he has taught up to this point. Because what James is saying is that the man who is wise will show it through his wise actions. That's what James has been leading us up to. That's the works section of James. If a man is wise, he will show you by the way that he lives his life. As we saw in the previous section, some of those in James's audience were taking up teaching roles in the church. And they seemed to be doing so for the wrong reasons. In other words, these, quote, teachers lacked wisdom. But beyond the teachers in the church, James also rebukes all of his readers when he states that many of them were using their tongues in very harmful and damaging ways. That's what we just spoke about, the ability to cause great damage with our tongues when we use our tongues unwisely. Where did these harmful words come from? Why were they so present to be right there on the tongue? Well, the reason is, according to James, is that they came from the heart, okay? They came from the heart. They came from the heart. According to James, they came from the bitter jealousy and the selfish ambition that was stored up in the folly of their hearts. 
Because as James makes abundantly clear in his teaching, good works must come, good works can only come from godly wisdom. A man who is wise is one that submits himself to the training programs of God. And we all must allow the trials and tribulations of this life to work in us the fruits of righteousness. This is why James says that the truly wise man, the truly wise man, will show his wisdom through the good works that are done in meekness. Meekness. James emphasizes the word meekness here to ensure that it is clear that such a man does his good works through humility, being fully aware that any goodness that comes through him is only because of the goodness of God. There is a sense of false humility. James always contrasting. True humility, false humility. True faith, dead faith. True wisdom, false wisdom. One could, in a sense, act very humble, but their main motive could be for selfish gain, selfish ambition, right? And that's what James is saying. He wants us to understand the heart principle. Therefore, James continues in verses 14 through 15 and says, But if you have bitter jealousy, he's talking to us, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It is earthly, unspiritual. Hear this word, demonic. Where verse 13 briefly describes the wise man who does godly works through wisdom. Verses 14 through 16 describe in contrast the origin of false or worldly wisdom. James again makes the connection that the actions of man come from that which is stored up within their hearts. The godly and wise man stores up good in his heart through the pursuit of wisdom where the foolish one is motivated by, quote, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The word bitter jealousy is better translated as bitter zeal being a reference primarily to a religious person who is motivated by the wrong things. The idea is that this false zeal really stems from the selfish ambitions within their hearts. Zeal can be a very good thing. It can be a very good thing. But the great danger is when zeal is motivated by the wisdom of the world. Apparently, the teachers in James's day were in particular danger of committing this error, which is why James took great care to warn those who desired to be teachers. James was telling his audience that they should be very careful in the checking the motivations within their hearts. Does the aspiring individual desire to teach because God has called them, James alludes to us? Or does the desire come from jealousy and selfish ambition? Because according to James, the motive in the heart is what makes all of the difference. James also makes the connection between the zeal of the corrupt Jewish leaders of the time, who you will you'll remember, exhibited great enthusiasm for the glory of God. As Paul describes in Romans 10, 2 through uh, 3, as he is discussing his love for his fellow Jewish brothers, he says this, For I bear them witness that they, referring to the Jewish leaders of the time, his fellow ethnic brothers, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not according to biblical wisdom. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. There's an undertone throughout James of uh, a rebuke towards the, uh, the, the, the corrupt Pharisees of the time. James very much knew that the people were aware of this, and there's often these references of the Pharisees of the time saying, look at what they did. That's a great example. The very people who went and said, let's put Christ on the cross. This is what James is saying. Don't, don't have this religion. 
don't have a religion that shows great zeal and passion, but really at, at the core of it is a very distorted evil heart, as both James and Christ himself um, would state in regarding some of these Pharisees. And so some in James' audience were being motivated also by this false wisdom and also by this worldly zeal. They were doing things such as speaking and teaching out of their own selfish ambition. But true wisdom, true wisdom that comes from God makes no room for bitter envy or selfish ambition. This is why everything that James is teaching in his epistle is founded upon that which the individual stores up in his or her heart. Don't miss this major connection because it's so central. James is not ultimately a book on works. I often wonder sometimes, uh, Martin Luther had great issues with the book of James because of how much on works it was. And the more and more that I study, as I study James, I wish I could sit down with Luther and say, Luther, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that James is really just saying everything opposite of that. He's saying the works that you will produce will come from your heart. Have the right heart and the works will come. Let Christ do that work in Christ alone and those will come. James really is an applied theology epistle that states that a heart is transformed by God will in turn produce good works. In contrast, a heart that is not transformed by God will produce sin and destruction. It really is that simple. That's the, that's the amazing thing. That's the profound thing. It really is that simple, brothers and sisters. And I know how convicting that is. I certainly know how convicting it is to me. I sometimes think that if I knew how convicting James would be to my own life, if I would have chosen to preach through it, but here we are. But we have to ask ourselves, do we lack the fruit that James is speaking of? Do we lack this fruit? Are you struggling with counting your trials as joy? Are you judgmental? Is your life not producing fruit? Are you unable to get a rein on your tongue? Your problem, according to James, is your heart. That's your problem. According to James, the problem is your heart and the sin that is welt up within. I think that unfortunately, far too many individuals have only given a a half-hearted effort towards their faith. I say that carefully, but I say that with lots of observation. I see a lot of people who who struggle, and and we all struggle. In great faith, those with great faith struggle. But I I, I seem to see more and more that there's people who kind of give a half-hearted effort and I think that too many know the truth at a distance, but they fail to truly trust the words of Scripture in their life. They become stuck in, a, in, in between a world of salvation and a world of stagnant growth, wondering where God is in the dryness of their faith, as if it were God that was the problem at all. But this is not the wisdom that comes from God. This wisdom, according to James, when we think this way, it is earthly, demonic, unspiritual. Because according to James, even our most difficult trials and tribulations in our lives do not even impact our faith. Because when and only when our faith is truly and wholeheartedly found in Christ, then we are able to count these things as joy. But when we fail to walk closely with God, when we fail to pursue His wisdom and the transformation that comes through the renewing of our minds, we will not produce the good works that James describes. That's why you can't read James as a works book. You're not going to be able to do these things. Nobody's able to do these things. Only Christ alone can do these things in us. This is why in verse 16, James says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. When someone lives by the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom that comes from God, sin will certainly abound. Wherever godly wisdom is lacking, 
sin will also be present. James is calling his audience to move away from their sins and instead move towards the wisdom of God. For by turning to God and his wisdom, their sinful actions would over time begin to turn into fruit. They would begin to turn into the works that James is speaking of. But to fail to produce, but to fail to pursue godly wisdom, the wisdom of the world instead takes its place in the hearts of man. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Our hearts, there's a throne. And there's only two people that can occupy that throne. Us and the world, or God in Christ. It's the only two. The throne is always occupied and there's only, only one that's there. We're either walking towards Christ or we're walking away. We're pursuing him or we're not pursuing him. We're growing in our faith or we're, we're floundering in our faith. And the Bible really does present it that way. That's, that's very black and white, I know. But we're all somewhere in that spectrum as we sojourn in this, in this world. And James says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, primarily from our hearts, there will then in turn be great disorder. James had previously used the same Greek word disorder back in chapter 1, verse 8, when he uh, described the double-minded man who asked God for wisdom. If you uh, were here for the first sermon, this was some time ago, but I'm sure that you'll remember, if you're familiar with James, this, double man, uh, this double-minded man who asked God for wisdom, but then doubts that God has given that wisdom. And the Bible says that this man is unstable, unstable in all his ways. There's great disorder in this person's life, the, the one who asks God for wisdom but does not believe that God gave it. So what James is alluding to in both of these passages is how this sinful disorder can take place amongst the people of God. It is when God's people trust in worldly wisdom rather than the wisdom of God that such unrighteousness and sinful actions can be produced within the people of God. That's how we get into those places. If you've ever been in a place of just wondering, how did I get here? How, how did I say that thing? How did I do that action? The Bible has an answer for you. It was in your hearts. And you had built it, and you had cultivated it, and you had grown it over time, and now you have this monster. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the actions flow. In addition, the word vile that James is, uh, uses here, is, it's an adjective that marks the moral character of a person or activity. It's used in John 3.20 and Titus 2.8 to describe worthless empty activities. There's just meaninglessness in it. There's no substance. There's no value to it. James is concerned for the unity of the body and where unruly tongues and worldly wisdom reign, the result is going to be selfish, selfishness, disorder, and empty, vile practices. James chapter 4, we'll talk more about that, but that's not where we're at right now. We're at James chapter 3. James is rebuking his audience uh, in this section. And he's gently calling them to repent of such evil and instead return to the true wisdom that comes only from God. And this is why in verse 17, James goes on to say, But the wisdom from above, the wisdom from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Verses 17 through 18 are a list of qualities of godly wisdom. In contrast to verses 14 through 16 that describe ungodly wisdom, James in these few small verses compares side by side godly wisdom and its outcome with worldly wisdom and its outcome. If we had the time, we could go through each one of these words that James lays out. We don't, but the context is really what's most important. He is showing two themes that will come about. Two themes. Here's how worldly wisdom, here's what it's going to produce, here's the works it's going to produce, and then here's godly wisdom and the works that it will produce. 
And what are those? Very briefly, worldly wisdom produces bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, earthly and unspiritual actions, that which is demonic, disorder, and vile practices. There's your worldly wisdom. But godly wisdom, in contrast, is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of fruit, impartial, and sincere. You can see these two different individuals. They're very different that are presented. In each one of these words, though there's meaning in them, what it's doing is it's painting a picture of the wise person versus the unwise person. That's exactly what James has wanted us to see his entire, his entire book. True wisdom, wisdom from above, is known by its fruits. The proof, as it were, really is in the pudding. I actually looked up that quote. I'm like, what does that even mean? You're interested. Look it up. Google it. It's interesting. It made sense when I thought of it, but you look it up. It's very interesting, uh, and it really does fit the context because you will know a godly person by their fruits. The proof will be in their lives. Paul's definition of true and false wisdom is also seen in Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Uh, I would encourage you to turn with me there if, uh, if you're able to. I think it'll be helpful if you're able to turn there. There's a very famous verse that um, many of you are probably familiar with, Colossians 2, 8 through 9, which is going to be wrapped up in this section. But Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Listen carefully to how the Apostle Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God in this passage. And um, also look at how he uh, uh, shows that this wisdom should actually transform the believer. That's going to become a theme that we're going to start merging to. Um, how should this wisdom actually make a difference in your life? Okay, This is more than just learning this stuff. It's more than just a good idea. It's more than just putting these verses you know, on the mirror in the morning when you're getting ready. There's something about this that's supposed to, uh, supposed to actually change you at your core. Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, you should actually be living out your faith. It should look different than those who are not believers. Verse 8. See to it. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This empty deceit would be worldly wisdom. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power and working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What we see here, Paul gives us insight into really what happened in Christ. Christ, God himself, the one who created everything, sent his son to die for your sins. And in the midst of the world, there's demonic oppression. The evil one is out. Don't be ta- taken captive by that. You live a different life. 
Your life should be different. Something should be fundamentally transformed within you because of this thing that we call salvation in Christ. And there's several times. This is only one of many examples. The Bible, again, why does the New Testament again and again come back to helping us remember that which Christ did? Because it should do something, right? It's to produce in us something. And yet when we go through our lives and we're not producing anything, something is wrong. And then often we say, well, God is distant, you know. I don't like the pastor's preaching. It's not good, you know. There's something else that's going on. And these things, yeah, there's better preaching than others. There's, there, there's some songs that may sound better with you. But these things, ultimately, that's what James wants us to see. They're coming from our hearts because we are not being transformed by that which the Scripture says we should be transformed by. Because when we are transformed by it, this is the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom that comes from above. And God's wisdom, when we allow it, produces in us, then produces in us the good fruit that James speaks of. The reason why so many people see James as a, as a book of works is because these things should flow from us. And in turn, when we are transformed, we then achieve righteousness in a life that is filled with fruit and good works. And so in verse 18, we read, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As James explained in the prior section of his book, Teachers use their tongues more than most, which is why James cautioned those who desired to become teachers, warning them to check the motives in their hearts, because it's predominantly through those that use their tongues that we are able to show kindness and the wisdom of God that predominates in our hearts, or the sin that has been cultivated within. In other words, if you want a window, if you want a window into a person's heart, listen to them for a little while. They'll tell you. They will show you what it is. And James says this comes out through the use of the tongue. Teachers reveal by the use of their tongue what kind of wisdom they possess. Self-appointed teachers, those by worldly wisdom not called by God, will probably not be bothered too much by the things that they say. Their selfish motives may lead them to cause factions and disorder amongst the congregations because their motives are, after all, based on jealousy and selfish ambition. But those called by God, both teacher and believers, will be most concerned about the truth and the fruits that should in turn be produced in their lives. For those who abide in Christ and His wisdom will sow in peace and produce a harvest of righteousness in all that they do. Righteousness, of course, is connected to right conduct, right living. It produces, it produces righteous living. There's a sequence here that James is, is giving us. Right living is the result of people who of peace and turn sow seeds of peace. They are peaceable people who go and produce more peace. Wisdom is contagious in a sense. So is foolishness. But these people, these people who produce peace that James talks about in, in verse 18, they are the ones who are truly driven by true and godly wisdom. And to achieve such righteousness that James talks about, one must fully submit themselves to the wisdom of God. They must fully submit themselves. Now, again, this is going to be further addressed in chapter 4 of what this looks like, but this is where James is taking us. He's saying, do you want to produce these things? Submit yourself fully then to the wisdom of God. Not half-heartedly, not partially, not on one day of the week only. Submit yourself fully to the wisdom of God. And through diligence and continual submission, God will train you up in His ways, the ways of godly wisdom, producing in all of us, the fruits of his righteousness. 
When God's wisdom permeates to the depths of a believer's heart, from such an individual will these good works flow. A believer fully submitted to the wisdom of God will indeed be transformed. Such an individual will know how to consider their trials as joy. Such an individual will know how to be a doer of the word. Such an individual will not show partiality to those within the congregation. Such an individual will, will produce the good works that James speaks of. Such an individual will learn to tame their tongue. Because as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Christ, and only through his wisdom, is such a fruit-filled life possible. And so as we begin to merge to a conclusion, as we begin to merge to a conclusion, there's four points of reflective application that I'd like to offer to you. And when we do these reflective applications, I really like to come back around and say, there's, there's repetition there, it's, it's a teaching principle, to say, what is James, if we were to break this down <clears throat> into smaller sections, what did he really say to us? And why should that really matter? And what does that really look like? What does that really look like? Because James is just so tangible. We break it down in these smaller ways this way. So <clears throat> I hope you appreciate uh, the way that I go about um, giving these further points of reflective application. And so point number one, in light of James 13 through 18. <clears throat> point number one. If you desire to live out a godly life, you must first seek out true wisdom. You have to. We need godly wisdom. You're not going to do it in yourself. The scriptures say that wisdom cries aloud in the, in the street. It's out there. It's, it's, it's begging for us. That, that's how Proverbs presents it. It's right there in our face if we're willing to do it. it I find myself often so many times just looking at the, these disciplines, right? Just when you wake up, you should stretch, right? It takes five minutes to do that. And then I wake up, I don't feel like stretching. You know? Then they goes on, and why, why do we not do these things that are right there? They're so simple. They're so simple. Why do we, we know they're good for us, but it's so hard to get in these. That's why they're called disciplines. They're called disciplines. And wisdom is right there. Every, every moment that we're awake, wisdom is crying aloud to us. And we can either give ear to it, or we can turn away from it. But one thing is certain, we must pursue it. We must make a, a conscious effort to pursue this thing that James calls wisdom. This is the action portion of James. This is why James has so much action to it. This is what we're to do. Not, not see how many conversations you can have and, and not say something unwise. Right? It's how can I pursue wisdom so that wisdom flows through me and it's no longer I who do it but Christ. That's the action portion. We cannot think that wisdom is something that will just magically appear in us. The scriptures command us to engage in the spiritual formation process, things such as spiritual disciplines, as we pursue what the Bible calls wisdom. When the Bible tells us to do something, it turns out we really do have to do the thing. It's not just good ideas to go and say, that sounds nice, that sounds appealing to the mind. When the Bible says for you to pray, you must pray. When the Bible says you must act, you must act. When the Bible says don't do this thing, you must not do that thing. These are not general ideas. These are things that are to actually guide our, our, our every waking moments in this life. We must ask ourselves how much effort we are truly giving to this pursuit. 
How much effort are we truly giving to the pursuit of wisdom and godliness? How much effort each week do we give to our jobs? How much effort each week do we give to our hobbies? How much effort do we give to caring for our cars or our homes or any of the things that we have? Are we seeing the state of our souls as being our most precious possession? Because remember, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And that which we give most effort to really will help determine where our treasures are. If we're not making a conscious and concerted effort to pursue what James is calling us to, we will not be producing these works that James lays out before us. This wisdom must be intentionally stored up and cultivated in our hearts. This isn't, this isn't something to, to toy with. These are real uh, uh, consequences in this life. And when people fall into great sin, every time, 100% of the time, it's because something has went wrong in their hearts. This practice of biblical wisdom takes effort. And we must take the time and energy necessary to work toward this effort every day. Just as giving no effort to exercise will produce an unfit body, just as giving no attention to our diet will produce an unhealthy body, just as not giving attention to stretching makes a very stiff and not pliable body, right? So too will not pursuing the wisdom of God produce in us an unhealthy heart. Same concept. So we must ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, what are we doing to be obedient to James's exhortation? And the answer to that question will greatly help us to make the necessary adjustments in our lives. Point number two, just as a person can have a false faith. This also James 2, 14 through 16, uh, we talked about that. Just as a person can have a false faith, so too can one have false wisdom, verses 14 through 15. As James had addressed in chapter 2, 14 through 26 of his, of his epistle, it's possible for someone to have a false faith. It was a difficult passage to work through, but we, we did, and we can, you're free to go back and to uh, review that sermon. But just in, in that same way, James also tells us that one can have this false wisdom. As stated previously, the Bible presents two types of wisdom, one worldly, one godly. And our world, church, oh, does our world believe itself to be so wise. So wise. How wise so many think that they are, so much so that they don't even need God at all, because they are, after all, way too smart for that. As I engage with those outside of the church, sometimes I'm greatly humbled at seeing that how much God is still working. God is still working, brothers and sisters. God is still working in our nation. I know it's hard to believe God is even still working in California. I know. It is true. God is still working. But as I engage with people, uh, more and more so, I'm increasingly reminded of Paul's words as I engage with those who are just very much worldly wise people. The verse constantly pops into my mind in Romans 1.22 where Paul says to such people, claiming to be wise, they have become fools. May we never be found falling victim to the false wisdom of this world. I remind you again of Paul's statement in Colossians 2, 8 through 9, when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, by worldly wisdom, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. There are two wisdoms, the ones of this world, the ones of Christ. And that is going to dictate everything that we do in this life. Everything that we do in this life. For in him, in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, meaning Christ. We as the people of God must pursue godly wisdom 
We must pursue it diligently, lest the wisdom of this world attempt to to deceive us and drive us away from the truths found within God's most holy word. And so point number three, point number three, you can see, you will see false wisdom through its sinful acts. Verse 16, many claim to be wise, but their lives and actions say something very different. James says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Church, where do jealousy and selfish ambition start? Where do they start? They begin. They begin in the heart. And when worldly wisdom and foolishness fill the heart, disorder and vile practices abound. So when people go around saying theology doesn't matter, I would like to go to them and say, thank you, kind ma'am or kind sir, but you are 100% wrong. That which you store in your heart, if it is wrong, If you do not understand the doctrines of salvation, if you don't understand the doctrines of God, you must understand these things. And more than that, they must be driven into your heart because they are going to be your lifeline for how you live your life. That which individuals think only exists in the heart does not remain just in the heart. I've been amazed, I think, where, where people... Sin doesn't stay silent. Over time, sin comes out. Over time, the folly that is built up in the hearts, it will eventually display itself through actions. It doesn't stay there. We feel so safe, you know, in in our minds. But the reality is, is all of a sudden, you know, where did I say that from? I can't believe I just acted that way. It's because that's what's stored up in your heart. It's no surprise. You shouldn't be surprised. People around shouldn't be surprised because you are displaying that which is a, a culmination. You are the product of that which you continuously do day after day after day, either building up or tearing down Christ within our hearts. Uh, Church, it's hard to be this blunt, to be quite honest with you. I may feel like it's just very easy to say these things. It's very convicting to me. But James's uh, teaching necessitates this blunt statement. If you have perpetual sin in your life, it is because your heart is filled with folly. You simply have not cultivated the garden of your heart as you ought. That's it. You haven't done what James has called you to. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and out of the good treasure stored up in one's heart, good is brought forth. Matthew 12, 34-35. And so the problem, brothers and sisters, is not other people. It's not other people. The problem is not the world. The problem is not bad luck that's come your way. The problem, our problem, The sin in our lives is because of that which is stored up in our hearts. The problem is not your spouse. It is not your children. It is not your job. It is not your situation. It's really hard to accept. It's really hard to accept that. That our problem is that we have failed to cultivate our hearts in the knowledge and wonder of God's word to allow his wisdom to transform us through the power of his spirit. Yes, life can be difficult. Yes, people can wrong you. People can sin against you. Yes, this world that we live in is sinful and broken. There is something wrong with it. But according to James, we are supposed to count this all as joy. We are supposed to count this all as joy. But why? Why would we do that? Why would we count this situation, that situation, the difficulty that every one of us is going through right now because we all have our own things because life is hard. Why would we count that as joy? Because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign and above all. Because God is truly God. Because God reigns on his throne this very moment. 
and we owe everything of who we are to him. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. He is a God who does what he says that he will do. And he says so clearly in his word that he will work all things for good to those who are called according to his purposes. And so we must trust him. We must fill his word within us and allow it to transform us so that we can see things through the spiritual lens. We must trust him. We must live for him in light of his promises. And this brings us to our fourth and final point of application that you can see true wisdom through its fruit. Verses 17 through 18. You can see true wisdom through its fruit. To be a Christian church is to be a transformed and continually transforming individual. It is to take your Christian faith as seriously as the Bible says you should. When one's faith is prioritized as being of the utmost importance, your life becomes immersed in the wisdom of God. Listen to the words of Peter in regards to this. 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9. Keep James's teaching in mind of this, and we're almost to the end, and so bear with me just a little bit longer. I think that this is very important to hear uh, what Peter says here. Verse 6. I'm going to go back. I'm going to start in verse 6, actually. So 1 Peter, starting in verse 6 through 9. In this you rejoice. Think of James, okay? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, if God finds it necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with that joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is more life than this, and it is so hard to keep our minds on that. So, so hard to fill our hearts with that. But what Peter says is that your faith is of the utmost importance. And so what are you doing? If your faith is the most important thing that you have, think about something at your house you really like, you really care about. It's a really nice, uh, you know, maybe an antique or, or something. It's, it's that thing that you are so concerned about. And then think about your faith sitting right next to it. What do you do? How do you cultivate it? How do you care for it? What are you doing to give attention to it? If we're not doing everything, James says we're missing the mark on this concept. And so the way that we are to live, brothers and sisters, is not in line with that of this world. We are called heavenward, and our hearts and our minds and our souls and actions should reflect this transformation. So the question should be asked, how do we grow in this godly wisdom that James has so poignantly presented to us today? It's convicting. What are some things that we can do? I want to give you a couple of very practical things, just as a starting point. This is not an exhaustive list. But I would say at a very minimum, this would be a good place to start. Okay? I want to give you five activities or, or disciplines or actions that will help you, that help all of us pursue this biblical wisdom pursuit on a deeper level. Let me give you five of them. Number one, read and study your Bible. It's always sitting there. It's always there. And I found for me... You have to find various ways of constantly trying to get the word in. I'm so thankful for the technology that we have today. We can listen to these things. We, within a moment, we, I can bring up eight different translations and look at the original Greek. I mean, all these tools that we have. And you think about it, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, all, some of them didn't even have the word. A thousand years ago, they didn't have access to it. How much they cherished it. Now all that we have to do, we can see every translation that's ever existed in every, every single format and every single um, uh, original language and, and 50 different commentaries. It's right there. And we could have that in 30 seconds. 
Yet with all that access, we just fail to you know, take the two minutes, the three minutes, the five minutes to do it. So we have to, we have to study the Bible. We have to read it. You have to fill yourself uh, with it. And so that's just a very basic practice. I hope that you're doing that. We have a reading plan that we offer as the church, the McShane reading plan. I encourage you to, to follow along with that because it allows us all to be reading through together. But whatever you do, make sure that you're reading and studying and studying your Bible. Lots of good resources. You can talk to myself, Pastor Joey, the elders. We can also share resources. The Emmaus Essentials would be another aspect of that too. Number two, listen to the read and preached word. You must be here on Sundays, brothers and sisters, to listen to the word preached. But there's lots of sermons out there you can listen to on the other days of the week. I find um, uh, having earpods, trying to always put that stuff in my mind. Good sermons going on, good information. Uh, it's, it's very nice. Before I preach on a particular passage, I try and listen to all these other preachers. You know, I study it first and I listen to all these other preachers just to make sure that I'm in line. I say, well, here's the conclusions I came from. Let me find the five people I really like. Let me listen to their sermon series on that passage. And uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a nice time to constantly have this information going in. So listen to the red word. Listen to the preached word. Listen to audio Bibles. So many resources out there. Three, read consistently and continually other good Christian literature. Yes, I would say audiobooks are acceptable. Uh, There's so much out there. Again, we have access to millions and millions of resources. And when we're having this going in our mind, we instead could have this going into our mind. And if this is the most precious thing, what are we allowing to go in, right? What are we allowing to constantly fill in our our hearts and our minds? And so there's tons of good literature. We have tons of resources. Um, Make it a habit. If you're not a reader, okay, I'm not going to fight you on that. But you can listen. And there's lots of audiobooks out there, too. Most stuff is on audiobooks, too. For meditate on the truths of God's word. Meditate on God's truth. Take time to sit and reflect even today. Like, read these passages that talks about something about God. I find that there's two times or places that really help me to just reflect on these things. In the middle of the night when you look up in the, in the sky and you see these stars and you start thinking, I kind of like astrophysics, you know, kind of blows my mind. And they just start thinking about the, the vastness of God. And I think about the Psalms uh, that, that talk about this. I find myself doing it a lot there. And the ocean uh, does that for me too, to just have that time to think and reflect So whatever you need to do, maybe it's a tree, maybe it's a room, uh, find a place where you can stop and just think about these things. Think about what that means. Really try just immersing yourself in in these particular truths, even of of the word that was preached today. And number five, number five, search your heart and confess your sins daily to God and one another. We have to be confessing people. We are sinful people. We have to confess our sins. We have to continually bring these things up over and over again. And so we need to search our hearts daily. Lord, reveal my sin. Help me to confess my sin. Did I wrong anybody? And if we actually did this, we're probably confessing to multiple people each day. Um, but that's, that's, that's the way that it should be. And at least that's the way that it would be, I know, for me. But we have to do that. If we've done something wrong, we have to say, I'm, I'm a sinner. I see that and do that. And I think these five things are, are a good place to start as we go through in trying to cultivate these things. Because in doing these things, uh, at a minimum, we most certainly will be pursuing the wisdom that comes from above. And so I say, in conclusion, are you stuck? Are you stuck, brother or sister? Do you feel like you're in a place of enduring rather than flourishing? Does your faith feel dry? And are the fruits in your life minimal or perhaps even non-existent? It's very likely that you're lacking the wisdom that James speaks of, the wisdom that comes only from above. So ask yourself, am I treating my need for godly wisdom in the same way that I approach my need for food, for money, for things, for life? Because scripture would say that we must, we must. Because we all need the wisdom of God. We need it desperately. Without it, we cannot survive the trials and tribulations of this life. 
And so pursue Christ and his wisdom. God is faithful to meet us where we are. God is faithful to produce in us the fruits that lead to righteousness and to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for James's teaching to us. May we be convicted and moved to action, as James would call us to. Help all of us, Lord, to watch over our hearts. Help us in this process. Lord, we need your help. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.